0: I would personally think, as a haematologist, I'm not so reluctant to use these agents would would also do that in children,
1: yeah. I think that's a very important point, and I think that this is something we have discussed for several years, but we have still not any consensus here. Hemostasis Connect is an initiative of Core2Ed. This podcast is supported by an educational grant from Takeda. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts organization or the rest of the Hemostasis Connect group. For experts' disclosures on conflict of interest, please go to hemostasis on core2end.com.
0: Hello and welcome to this podcast. I'm uh, Katharina Holstein. I'm a hematologist and I'm working in Hamburg in Germany at the University Medical Center Hamburg-Appendorf. Our hemophilia center is a big center. We are treating many patients. We have a pediatric clinic and I personally treat adult patients. We have long experience also with immune tolerance inductions in children, of course, and in adults and in complicated patients. I'm happy to be here together with Jan Astermark from Sweden. Jan, please introduce yourself.
1: Thanks, Katarina. So, yes, my name is Jan Astermark and I'm a professor at Lund University uh, in Sweden and I was also senior consultant and head of the Center for Thrombosis and Hemostasis and the Haemophilia Center at the Skåne University Hospital in Malmö. Today, Katarina and I will discuss whether immune tolerance induction is still the first choice in patients with Haemophilia A with inhibitors now that we have entered an era with new drugs. And what we're going to focus on here is the use of Emicizumab. We have recently published the results of a survey on this topic in the journal Haemophilia, paper was developed within uh, the European Collaborative Hemophilia Network and co-authored by our colleagues Sandra Lekwelek, Robert Klamroth, Angelika Baturova, Paul-Andre Holme, and Victor Ximenez-Juste. With this survey, we aim to determine whether ITI is still used in the routine management of patients with hemophilia A and whether the availability of hemisizumab prophylaxis has influenced treatment decisions. So I really look forward to discuss some of the key outcomes of this today with you, Katerina. And first of all, could you please just explain what we did in our survey in a bit more detail?
0: Yes, of course I can. Um, So I think everybody knows that inhibitors are the most serious complication that we experience uh, with hemophilia treatment still today. ITI has a high treatment burden for those patients with most times twice daily intravenous injections. So what we wanted to explore in our survey is whether with the um, invention of imecizumab, the approach to ITI has changed. And we wanted to compare our data to a previous survey from 2016 in which we also explored ITI regimens. And this survey was designed by the working group members. And we had 18 respondents from 70 countries in Europe and Middle East. And those respondents care for about 5,000 patients with hemophilia A, of which are about 2,400 with severe hemophilia. And the survey was done between November 2020 and January 21. So, Jan, what general picture did you get from our data? So, could you? please
1: summarize the results. Yeah, very brief terms. I think that uh, first of all, I think that the approach we have had here, comparing uh, what we have done before uh, with what we have now, uh, I think that's a very interesting approach since we now have so much happening in this area. Uh, What we can say, which I think was very interesting is that ITI seems still to be the mainstay of treatment actually comparing the number of patients that were on ITI or hadn't performed ITI in the more recent years compared with uh, a d- decade ago, there were more patients having been exposed or were exposed to ITI than in our previous survey. However, the approach to use ITI and the regimens to use seems to have changed. And of course, also, emicizumab has emerged as an alternative in this area, offering a way of really improving prophylaxis. So clearly the approach has been different. So if we go into some details here more, Katerina, so if we compare our results to, for example, the 260 data, there seems to be a trend towards lower ITI dosing. Do you also see that in your own practice or use that in your own practice, Katerina?
0: I would say yes. I don't treat so many pediatric patients uh, that's done by our pediatric unit, but I know that they are using emissimate prophylaxis in those patients. And there is also a trend to lower dosing uh, because ITI burden is very high. And if they discuss the approaches with the patient, they usually um, agree on using the every second day protocol, according to the Atlanta protocol, for example. And this seems to be a quite comfortable approach also for uh, patients and parents and uh, more realistic to do if you have this alternative and still can achieve immune tolerance, hopefully.
1: You know, we, we did have this uh, international ITI study, the, the study that everyone knows about having been be randomized between the high and low dose. So, so if you put a patient uh, on the lower dose ITI protocol, do you follow that? So if the titer goes up above a certain level, like 200, et cetera, do you then increase your treatment? Do you go to daily treatment, whatever, keeping emicizumab or how do you deal with that?
0: So, yes, in those patients with high titer inhibitors, they have a high bleeding risk. And in those patients, we keep the emicizumab prophylaxis. And we would probably also increase the dose because, uh, I mean, in Germany, it's quite usual. Together with others, invented the high-dose protocol. So, so it's very traditional in Germany, the bond protocol. And um, I think in those with rising inhibitors and poor prognosis, this still is an option to use and uh, would be done.
1: Are you concerned using imicizumab with a daily dose, a higher dose of ITI?
0: So if the patients have a good pharmacokinetic with a factor 8, you might probably not need it anymore. So then you can think of stopping imicizumab prophylaxis. But if you still have very low factor levels, I think I'm not concerned and I'm more concerned about bleeding than about thrombosis.
1: And I think that this was something we saw in the survey that the the, the intention here or the most of our college seems to start with a lower dose and, and I mean, we all know that we want to protect our patients against bleeds and that's in a really important part in, in these inhibitor patients. The other one is, of course, to eradicate the immune response. But for the time being, we know the most optimal protocol actually to use in these patients. And we all know that the higher the titer is, the harder it will be to eradicate the immune response. So I think that we need much more data here. And I think it's important, and I I guess you agree, and I think we discussed that also within the network, the importance here of trying to either put patients on trials to really know what will be best at the end, or have some kind of registry where we can see using these combined options, sumab with some kind of ITI regime, how that will turn out at the end, not just to protect against bleeds, but also eradicate the immune response.
0: Yes, I would absolutely agree. Yeah. And uh, that could be one of the key messages of our uh, um, podcast that we really need to collect the data in this field where experience is not so big yet.
1: Yeah, I fully, I, fully, I fully agree. So and we had also one interesting one, with this discussion with the type of product that's going to be used. It seems like in, in going around the world, not just in Europe, it's a little bit different approach of using von Willebrand-containing products versus not von Willebrand-containing products. And, and I think that that was interesting in, in our survey as well, that... There, There is different opinions of this still, even in this era now with the new extended half-life products etc. so which factor-rate products to use with the aim to improve their eradication?
0: Yeah, so what we observed in our survey was about 50% of the respondents using the Van Villepen factor-containing products, and I think that reflects also what we perhaps would do in those patients with a perceived bad prognosis. We would Probably more tend to use a von Willebrand factor-containing product. And those with a, a not very high responding inhibitors would start with the product with which they develop the inhibitor. So I think that would be the usual approach for us.
1: We had some question in our survey about waiting with ITI. Put patients on emicizumab. What would you do if you have a patient with a tighter around, let's say, 20, 30, 40, 50? Would you? somehow try to put that patient on emesisimab or would you start it with or without the, the combined use immediately?
0: So it really depends on the patient, I think, and, and uh, venous axis and those problems that are difficult to handle in those very young children. But I personally believe that starting ITI early is probably better than waiting too long. And um, this is not really evidence-based, I know, but the German approach has been before emicizumab to start immediately after detection of the inhibitor. And I think I wouldn't really leave this approach because if it's possible and realistic for the patient to be compliant with the treatment, then I would start also with the ITI not too late. I mean, you are not so much in a hurry anymore because you have an effective bleeding prophylaxis, but not way too long.
1: Yeah, I think that's a key message from everyone in the hemophilia business, that, that we should do whatever we can to, to protect our patients from having any deleterious bleeds, that's clear. And then the eradication will be a second point that will be important as well, but at least we're going to protect our patients against bleeds and have an, an optimized way of providing prophylaxis, that, that's clear, yes. We had a lot of other things. We asked for these ITI failures. That's an interesting one, don't you agree?
0: Yes, indeed. And I think that's the really big innovation with emicizumab that we have now the option to treat those patients with a effective prophylaxis, which has been a challenge before with the bypassing agents. And for those with maybe several IDI failures, uh, it has been adopted in most centers uh, to do emicizumab prophylaxis. But still, most of the respondents said that they would uh, attempt a second approach, uh, a second trial for IDI. Whether this is then done in clinical practice, we will see because um, the chances for success don't get better uh, with the second or third approach. But still, at the moment, most uh, respondents would prefer that. What's your opinion on that?
1: Yeah, well, I I agree. And I think that this is an area where we really need to get more data. We all know that if patients fail the first ITI attempt, then the chance of tolerizing that patients are not as good. I think we all know that. The question to me actually is when should a failure be defined? And I think that um, later on maybe we'll, we'll address mild moderate, uh, but also in the severe area of patients here uh, with severe hemophilia, it's not completely clear how long should you continue, what can happen in the immune system, et cetera. So for practical reasons, we usually continue for a certain time. And then it's such such a burdensome treatment. So you would like to change or or do something else. And here, clearly, emicizumab has offered a very convenient and very efficacious option in these patients. However, in my clinic and in my own view, I would not skip the idea of having a tolerant patient because I think that if we could have a patient that's tolerant towards factor eight, that patients would be prepared for the future in a better way than going into the future with inhibitors. We should somehow, in my view, aim for having patients that we potentially could offer any treatment in the future, uh, any treatment that can provide normal hemostasis or cure, whatever we call it. And so we should aim for it. However, we also know that some patients will be very, very tricky. So I think it's a It's a discussion we have to have with the families and the patients, and that's the way we are doing it. So if it's not seems to work the first time, then we take a discussion how to proceed. The first approach in my view would be to somehow find a way with the aim of still trying to tolerate the patients. However, emisizumab is there, and emisizumab is provided to protect the patient in the best way towards bleeds. So it's a very good option, but I would still discuss it If the titre goes very, very high, the chance seems to be very, very low, and then we should probably go for the most convenient, and best way for the patients as such. Coming back a little bit to these very high-responding inhibitors. So with emicizumab, has your own view on those patients changed, Katarina? Do you treat them differently? And would you consider a low-dose protocol in patients with very high titers, or would you there uh, do it differently?
0: So I think yeah it's known and that's the general experience that those patients have a bad prognosis for inhibitor er- eradication and therefore I probably would prefer to choose a high dose uh, protocol f- upfront with a, the idea of hit hard and early and um maybe have a better prognosis with starting with this high dose protocol and if that's not successful I would consider also immunosuppression to to add I mean those young patients are mostly not at very high risk to have serious complications from immunosuppression. So I would personally think as a hematologist, I'm not so reluctant to use these agents, would would also do that in children,
1: yeah. I think that's a very important point. And I think that this is something we have discussed for several years, but we have still not any consensus here. And we do have protocols, as we all know, not least the one from Germany and, and the protocol you have yourself been publishing around the, what we call the Beutel protocol, very, very often used. But I think that if we could identify patients that would be very hard to tolerate, we should probably go for optimized prophylaxis to prevent bleeds and their is a really useful agent. And then we should probably, earlier maybe than we are using today, use immunosuppressants. I would agree with that, definitely.
0: Yeah. And I still think also in those patients, it's definitely a good goal to achieve immune tolerance. Still for surgery, it's a better option to have uh, immune tolerance against factor eight because with the bypassing agents, it's most times less effective and more complicated to cover the hemostatic response for surgery. So also those high risk patients, I think, need to have the chance to get tolerized. I
1: agree completely. Do you think To get an inhibitor, if you have non-severe hemophilia, is the same as when you get an inhibitor if you have a severe hemophilia? Is it the same inhibitor?
0: No, I actually think it's completely different. And um, you see also different bleeding patterns and uh, they behave differently and they resemble a bit uh, the acquired hemophilia inhibitors. They often have those type two inhibitors. So I think it's a kind of a different um, condition in those patients.
1: I agree. I mean, we can see that. It seems like the approach to ITI and the use of immunosuppression is different in these non-severe patients compared with the severe patients. That is, I think, what we have seen over the years and the approach of our colleagues as well, including probably you and myself.
0: Yeah. In our survey, we can say that the patient numbers were low, so it's difficult to to draw conclusions. But yeah, immune tolerance was um, less frequently used, I think, in those patients and success was not as good. And so it still remains an open question how to approach those patients.
1: But would you use ITI in these patients, Katarina, at all?
0: It depends on the patients, I would say. I think it's worth waiting for a while to see whether the inhibitor disappears spontaneously. In some patients, it does. And maybe I would use immunosuppression, but I would also consider ITI, yes, of course. And I also think for those patients, it's important to achieve tolerance because also they need treatment for surgery or breakthrough beads.
1: Yeah, I would fully agree with that. And I would also use ITI, but I think that the approach would be a little bit different. As you said, we know that it seems like the the inhibitor disappears more often or spontaneously disappear. However, I don't think we are so good actually to make sure that the mild, non-severe patients actually are completely tolerant. Coming back to the discussion we had in the severe group, we have our criteria there with the peaks and recovery and half-life but in the non-severe group, I think that's even more tricky. And I think that what we discussed also in our survey is what we know that uh, patients that we believe are tolerized, uh, maybe in the case of non-severe hemophilia, will not be tolerized. So we will re-challenge them, we will have a high proportion of patients we having the inhibitor again. I think that that's another area where we need to have more experiences, as you said, and what we also saw in our survey, the number of patients with inhibitors are not so high, and therefore it's tricky to really get consensus and really know how to best approach these patients. Do you have any comments on the use of imecizumab for these non-severe patients?
0: Yes, I think in those patients who get the inhibitor also against the endogenous factor rate, uh, those who have uh, low factor rate levels, uh, below 1%, they have a high bleeding tendency and they also need some kind of prophylaxis and why shouldn't they get emicizumab? And I think that was practiced also in our survey, which we saw that those patients with bleeding tendency, they got emicizumab prophylaxis most countries, I think it's also licensed for patients with inhibitors. It doesn't matter whether he has a mild, severe or a moderate hemophilia as underlying disorder.
1: Oh, exactly. But I also think this is a field where we would like to have more data. So uh, all patients that are put on systemab with non-severe hemophilia, we need to most. I hope, I hope that we all will work together to get data out because the number of patients are not so high and therefore... We need to share our experience uh, among uh, all of us, so that will be important, I think. Come a little bit to cost and availability. We ran our survey in European countries uh, and in Israel and Turkey. Uh, What's your view, Katerina, on the impact of cost and availability on the use of the different treatment options we have discussed?
0: (laughs) Yes, I think there definitely is an impact. Uh, There have been some countries who couldn't use emicizumab at all because it's not reimbursed and not licensed in the country, and others who couldn't use it in combination with ITI. And that uh, was also reflected in the uh, treatment protocols used. Only about 40% used uh, emicizumab prophylaxis um, together with ITI. And um, I think when we ask for the approach for the new patients, most Respondents would prefer to use it. So it's uh, some kind of discrepancy of availability and possibility to use it and maybe thinking it's a good approach. And still, what we explored was Europe. So we have a quite good situation, more or less. And in other countries, it might be even more difficult.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, Federina, thanks for a great discussion today. My key takeaways from this podcast are that ITI seems to still be a mainstay for hemophilia treatment. But clearly, emicizumab has offered something new and very useful. It has become a preferred first-line approach to protect against bleeds and also represent an alternative to burdensome ITI in certain patients' groups. I think that what you pointed out as well and what I think we can end this podcast with as well is that prospective clinical trials on the concomitant use of ITI in your system of prophylaxis will really be helpful for the development of new ITI protocols for patients with inhibitors and for us all to know how we will best manage our patients. So once again, Katrina, thanks a lot for a great discussion.
0: So thank you, Jan. So I agree completely with your take-home messages, and it was a pleasure.
1: This hemostasis connect podcast was brought to you by Courtoed Independent Medical Education. For more information please visit call2ed.com and select hemostasis